0: said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international
1: speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Before we open God's word this morning, I invite you to bow with me as we pray. Father in heaven, as we open the scriptures, we ask and pray that the scriptures may open our hearts. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and so, Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit may speak to us, that the words of scripture, which are God-breathed, may breathe upon us afresh, that we may be, that we may be burning within our hearts, as the disciples experienced on the road to Emmaus when Jesus opened the scriptures with them. Father, be with me and speak through me, Father. May not be my words, but rather your words is a prayer that I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. We've got a new series that we're going through, and this series will run for seven weeks. You know, you um, introduced this series, Ash, when you did the welcome. This series is looking at the pillars of our faith, and there are key pillars. Oh, there's many doctrines um, of our faith, but there's seven key ones. And some of them are uniquely Adventist. Some of them, other faiths have as well. But I would like to say this morning that the study that we're going to have, which is on Scripture, is really the foundation of all the pillars. If it was not for this book church, then we wouldn't have any other pillars, you know, it, it's amazing when you consider what a pillar does or what a structure does. You know, the, the foundation or a pillar provides the, the structure and the security to, to a building. I mean, if you didn't really have much structure, if you had no foundation, then that building wouldn't last long, would it? I mean, Jesus shares this principle when he teaches, and what I love about Jesus when he teaches is he takes the complicated and the theoretical, the theological, and he boils it down into a simple kind of story, and he employs parables as teachings that everybody can access. And they're so simple, but at the same time, they're so profound. Like, you can study these parables, and still you're not plumbing the depth of these parables. And Jesus employs the parable at the end of his Sermon on the Mount of the wise and foolish man. He has two different groups of people that really embody all of humanity. All of humanity is either characterized by the wise man or the foolish man. The wise man is seen as he who built his house where, church? He built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house where? On the sand. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the wise man and the foolish man both build their houses when? When the storm comes. Before the storm comes, which means that's times such as these that we build the edifice of our life. Nobody builds a building in the middle of a storm. Today is a day to get ready for that which is to come. So all of humanity is either characterized by the wise man or the foolish man. But I tell you what's even more interesting is what Jesus, the lessons that Jesus gleans from this story, this is what he says as he introduces this story. He says, Therefore whoever hears these saying of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Now you've got to understand what Jesus is getting at here because this is at the very end of his Sermon on the Mount, it's not at the beginning. He said all that he needed to say and he comes to the end and he summarizes everything that he has said by this simple parable of the wise and foolish man. And he connects that parable of the wise and foolish man with all that he said and he says, he who hears these sayings of mine and does them. In other words, it's not enough just to hear what God has said, but we should do it as well. We should not only be hearers of the word, church, we should be doers of the word, amen? Jesus says, the wise man is he who hears and does, the foolish man is he who hears but doesn't do. These are the pillars of our faith, church. This is the foundation upon which we build and the foundation that we build is the scriptures and Jesus links himself with this. He who hears my words and does them is he who builds his life upon the rock because the word of God is the son of God. Jesus is the word made flesh. If you're building on the word, you're building upon Jesus. And this is why Paul says, no other foundation can be laid than that which has been laid, Jesus Christ. If we follow Jesus, we will follow his teachings and we will follow his truth. I think sometimes doctrine can be seen as a dirty word. But I encourage you that if you have that perspective to do a study, a word search of the word doctrine. And see, all the times in the New Testament when the word doctrine arises, the doctrines were essential in the early church and they're essential in Christian faith because doctrine is teaching about Jesus. It's teaching about God. If we don't have doctrine, then we don't know who God is and we don't know who we worship. Simply put, doctrines are like windows. What happens to this building if we shut all the windows? It's dark and we can't see what's out. The more doctrines we have, the more teachings about God that we have, the more that we see about God. And I want to tell you, the teachings, the doctrines of Scripture are a beautiful picture when they paint the picture about God. The seven studies that we're going to do over these next few weeks, we're looking at Scriptures today. We're going to have a look at salvation next week. That's one of my favorites, and I'm looking forward to that sermon next week. We're going to be looking at sanctuary, Sabbath, state of the dead, spirit of prophecy, and second coming. We're going to take this sweep of scripture, these seven pillars of our faith and why they're important. But before we can have a look at any of them, church, guess which one we have to have a look at first? We have to look at the word of God. Does anybody know who this man was? I didn't think so. It's William Tyndale. Now this man lived 500 or so years ago. And this man had a particular passion and his passion was taking the scriptures and putting them into the vernacular of the people of his day. The scriptures were in Latin or they're in other languages. You know, you either had the Greek or you had the Hebrew or you had the Latin. Most of it was in the Latin and so the common people couldn't access the scriptures. And he had this irrepressible burden upon his heart that he needs to take the ancient scriptures, God's holy words, and put it in a language that people can understand. But you've got to understand that since 1408, after Wycliffe had come on the scene and he'd passed off the scene, the morning star of the Reformation, there was this law that interpreting the scripture from the ancient languages into the present native common tongue was illegal. In fact, if anyone was found with any scriptures in the native language, then you would be burned at the stake. You'd be accused of being a Lollard, a follower of Wycliffe. And so here was Tyndale, he's wanting to do this and he's going around trying to get support but nobody's wanting to support him and probably the reason why nobody wants to support him because if they were to support him then they would be burned at the stake. But it's amazing that even though that the word, was, word of God was outlawed it never keeps it down. You can never stop the word of God, that's the thing. God's word continues to speak even when it's persecuted and even when it's oppressed, even when it's shut up, the word of God still shines forth and will still break forth. You think about the early church. When the early church was persecuted, guess what happened with the gospel message? It spread even further and even faster than what it would have done if they weren't persecuting the Christian church. And so what happened in Cambridge where this guy you know, studied, where Tyndale studied, scriptures were smuggled in by pirates Pretty interesting to think about that. You you often think of people who are smuggling things as smuggling like contraband and drugs and weapons, you know, but they're smuggling Bibles, you know. And they would smuggle it down the river and they take it to Cambridge, which was a church-owned facility. And then what they would do with the scriptures and not just the scriptures, also Martin Luther's writings, they would take it to the pubs. And at the pubs, they would read the Bible because no one would expect anybody to be reading the Bibles at the pubs. And that's where they would learn and they would study the scriptures. It's interesting when you consider why this was such an important phase in the history of humanity, church. I fully believe it. I fully believe with all of my heart that the world is the way that it is in terms of the freedoms that we have today. It's because of the Protestant Reformation. I fully believe it. Men such as, men such as Wycliffe, Huss, Jerome, Calvin... Melanchthon, Tyndale, all these great, great men, mighty men in the faith, and then a little bit later, Whitfield and Wesley, all these great men and women of faith who stood up and, and put the scriptures in the common tongue, radically changed the history of the world. And I want to tell you why that's the case. If you can keep a people uneducated, then you can keep a people controlled, And so what the kings did and what the popes did is they kept the people uneducated because when they were uneducated they could tell them what to do and how to do it and they didn't have any reason to say otherwise. But the moment the scriptures were translated into the native tongue, people would be like, wait a minute, you're saying that and God's word says this. Illiteracy was prevalent. In fact, three decades after Tyndale's death, the bishop went to Gloucestershire and he actually talked to a, a number of clergy and he asked them a number of questions and these are the questions that he asked and these are the answers that he got. He asked them, how many commandments are there? And nine of them didn't know how many commandments there were. This is clergy, guys. 33 didn't know where these Commandments appeared in the Bible. Most of them said Matthew. Eh, Probably in Matthew. 168 couldn't even repeat any of the commandments. And so what we see here is just complete. You know, you know, there's biblical illiteracy. Nobody really knows much about the Scriptures, and the reason why they didn't know much about the Scriptures is because nobody was reading the Scriptures. Even the clergy was ignorant about what the Scriptures actually said because they would take the direct word from the popes and the councils. And Tyndale says, he says, no, we're going to put this in the common language. And I want to show you the response. The response of the people when they heard the, the words of Scripture taken from the holy language of Latin and put into the common tongue. This is what it says. Wycliffe translated it from Latin into English. This is a guy in the 14th century. This is the aristocracy, the ruling class. The people had the power and the control. Not the angelic language. As a result, what was previously known only by learned clerics and those of good understanding had become common and available to laity. In fact, even to women who can read... As a result, the pearls of the gospel have been scattered and spread before swine. This is what this guy was up against. To take the holy scriptures and put them in the native tongue is to take the pearls of the gospel and cast it before the swine because it's being cast before the common people. Do you want to know the real reason why he felt that? It's because when this book was translated and put into the common tongue, it was a great social leveler. And when Tyndale did his, his translation of the New Testament, when he came to the word church, he didn't translate the word church as church. He didn't take ecclesia and translate it as church. Did, do you know what he translated it as? Congregation. Because he didn't want anyone reading it to think of the church structure. He wanted them to think of the body of Christ. He was trying to remove from people's understanding that we, um, we should bow the knee to the authorities in Rome. We should bow our knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Geneva Bible, which came a little bit later, they connected the word tyrant with king quite a lot, so much so that King James didn't like that. And so when you look at the King James Bible, you never see the word tyrant in connection to a king. It was a great social leveller. Tyndale says this, and you may know this quote, he says, If God spare my life ere many days, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than thou doest. Why? It's the great social leveller. The boy who drives the plow, who is ignorant and a no-hoper, can now have a theological debate with you, the ruling class. The Bible liberated the world, church. It liberated the world. The Dark Ages was the Dark Ages because the Bible was hidden and the ruling classes had complete dominion. But when the Bible was opened up, the world radically changed forever. Why? Why such an effort by so many men to unshackle the word of God at the cost of their lives? Because Tyndale, he was burnt at the stake as a result of it. In fact, when he was burnt at the stake, they took his translations of his Bible and they threw it in the fire. Before he was burnt, there was a bishop who preached at St. Paul's in London, the great cathedral. He preached against Tyndale. After his sermon, he went out into the public square and he had a Bible burning. Imagine that. Imagine us having a sermon here today and then after the sermon, we go and have a bonfire and at the bonfire, we burn the Bible. Our world would be radically different if it wasn't for the courage of these men who were moved by the Spirit of God to stand up for the Word of God when nobody else was willing to. Why were they willing to do this, church? Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll show you why. They had this belief that governed everything that they did. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, let me know when you're there. If you don't have your Bibles, it's up on the screen. I made you turn there first. There's a particular version I want to have a look at because I love the way the ESV puts it. Follow along with me in your scripture. What's that first word in your Bible? All. All scripture is breathed out by God. If you have the King James or the New King James, it says all scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired means God breathed. And there's a whole lot of substance in that word God breathed that we're gonna bring out shortly. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for? Teaching. teaching. For? For? And for? Training in righteousness. Why? Why? that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is what it is good for. It's good for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training. And this is what it does. It completes and it equips. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. All Scripture is God breathed. Does that remind you of anything? Think about it. What does it remind you of? Adam. When God created Adam, remember when God formed Adam from the dust of the ground and then what did he do after he formed him from the dust of the ground? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God breathed and Adam became a being. He became a living soul. When God breathed, guess what happens? That which did not exist, exists. Exists. But it's not just in creation that we see God breathing and things coming to existence. It's also in recreation, yeah? When God saves. This is what Paul says. In Romans chapter 4, verse 17, he says, God who calls life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And when Paul is speaking here in Romans, he's speaking from the perspective of salvation or recreation. When God breathes, he creates Adam. When God breathes, he recreates our souls, When God saves and when God creates, it's the creative saving power of God that when he breathes on you, he brings into life that which didn't exist. It's the power of God. Now I want you to think about it. When Jesus healed people, what did he say? Some examples. He said, I am willing to be clean. Pick up your bed and walk. Lazarus, come forth. And when Jesus says those words, God Breathes and what happens? He is clean. He picks up his bed and walks. Lazarus comes forth. Why? All scripture is God breathed. Another question. When God said, Let there be light, how long did it take before there was light? When Jesus says, I am willing to be cleaned, how long did it take before he was clean? Why? Because that's the power of the word of God. When the word of God was shackled and held in the darkness during the dark ages, it still, it, it still shone forth. But when the Bible was translated into the native tongue and everybody had a Bible in their homes, guess what started to happen to lives? Life started to change. When the Bible was actually a contraband, and it actually came forth for the first time. You think of what happened in the Soviet Union. We have a couple of people here who've done missionary trips there when people received their first Bibles. After it being illegal for so long, what did they do? They wept. Do you know what happens today? When things become, we become so used to things and it becomes so common, we begin to treat things as common, don't we? And that's what happened after the Reformation. What happened in France with the Revolution and all of those things was because people had forgotten what the Bible had done and they associated the moving of the Spirit of God with the corrupt church of the day. Do you know what saved England from that? Do you know what saved England from going down the same path that the French... The nation of France did, the French Revolution. I believe it was men like John Wesley and George Whitfield who preached the gospel in the open fields because they had exactly the same problem in France. But a reason, like Charles Dickens, when he writes his book and says it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of reason, it was the age of incredulity. He has that introduction to the tale of two cities the city of Paris and the city of London the reason that they're two different you know, introductions, it was the best of times in England, it was the worst of times in France, is because of the preaching of John Wesley and the social reform that took place because the gospel touched and transformed lives as the word of God breathed on people. It's called conversion. Have you experienced it? When God speaks into your life, you're never the same again. When you pick up this book and you read it and you realize that I'm not just reading words on a page, but I'm reading God's direct message to me, it does something within you and it changes you from the inside out. It's because God is breathing on you. And just as he said to that, that leper, he said, I'm willing to be cleansed. God is saying the same thing to your soul and you are clean. You take that message in 1 John 1.9 that says, if we confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we claim that promise in the name of Jesus because all the promises of scripture are yes and amen in him and the moment we claim it we believe that we receive it and we have it because God breathes and the promises of God are instantaneous if we claim them in Jesus' name. The word of God when it collides with our life changes our lives forever. My question for you church is how much time do you spend reading it? Or has it become so common that we put it on a shelf and it collects dust and we dust it off when we come to church for the Sabbath school lesson? The preacher puts these verses on the screen, so I don't even need to bring my Bible then. The Bible changes lives and it transformed the world and it still can do the same thing today. In fact, it is doing the very same thing today. How much of Scripture is God breathed? How much of the Bible has creative power then? All of it. All scripture. The Bible is miraculous. Not in the sense that it fell down from heaven. But in the sense it is God breathed and it has intrinsic power in it. God spoke to holy men, it says in 2 Peter. Who then through their own personality, their own flaws, their own weaknesses assembled this amazing book That when you read the four Gospels, you get different glimpses of Jesus in all the four Gospels because they're communicating through their own personality. And then you can jump to the Old Testament, you can go to the book of Psalms and you see poetry, beautiful poems. Then you can jump to the book of Kings and you have all the history. It's just an amazing book. You can go to Daniel and you see the apocalyptic prophecies and even in the same book you have the stories. This is a masterful work. And it's not just the work of men. God used men. It is the work of God. And God forbid that we should look at this book and say, I think this part is inspired, and I don't think this part is inspired. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is not up to us to choose what is and what isn't. Because in doing that, we are putting ourselves above what God has said is truth. Now, We've looked at the what of scripture, let's have a look at the why. All scripture is God breathed, it breathes life. What were those four things, I'm testing you now, what are those four things that 2 Timothy says the Bible does? It teaches, it reproves, it corrects, and it trains. Four things, we're going to unpack these four things. Now why does it do these four things? We'll have a look at it shortly. So, the first thing is that it teaches. What does it teach us, church? Well, it teaches us truth. And how does it teach us truth? It teaches us truth by declaring truth. It says, This is the truth. So, the Bible points out the wrongs, but it doesn't just point out the wrongs, it also communicates what is objectively true the Ten Commandments. This is objectively true. You know, what would happen if everybody had a subjective understanding of the road rules? How would you drive home be? What would it be like? The word of God tells you what is objectively true. And you can kick and you can scream and you can fold your, hand, you fold your arms and you can put your head in the sand. But that doesn't change the fact that the truth is the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. And sometimes, well, this is the case in our society today, which is redefining what is true and what is not and all the lines are blurred, and you can have your truth, and I'll have my truth. No, there is the truth. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible, what was it, what would it do? It will teach us by declaring what is true. And if the Bible will teach us what is true, then the Bible will always be opposed. It will always be opposed, because there will be people who don't want the truth to be revealed because they have their own way and they want to enforce their own agenda upon society. That's what tyrants have always done. That's why they try to lock down the scriptures. That's why in the Soviet Union, they didn't want the Bible to be released in the common tongue. That's why during the Dark Ages, they didn't want the scriptures in the common vernacular, because the Bible declares what is true. And when the Bible declares what is true, we can then question what is false. And when you question what is false, you expose, you expose Sorry, who is false. The second thing the Bible does is that it reproves. Who here likes to be reproved? The second function of Scripture is that it reproves us. It reproves us by confronting the brokenness in our own lives. Now this is not a comfortable thing, but this is a necessary thing. In order to grow, in order to improve, you have to be reproved. And so the Bible declares what the truth is through teaching and it reproves us of what's wrong. Now the thing is, for my life and I know for your life, there are times where I go to empty wells hoping that they will satisfy me. And when I open the scriptures and I spend time reading the scriptures, God may have a verse or a story that speaks directly into that space. Has that happened to you before? Where you're reading it and there's just this conviction and it just cuts to your heart and you feel reproved. You're under conviction of the Holy Spirit. Is that a comfortable place to be? No, but is it, a beneficial, is it a beneficial place to be? Absolutely. And God will cut your heart. We see in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost when Peter got up and he preached the word of God, what does it say happened to those who were listening? They were cut to the heart because the word of God reproves us of sin. The third thing that it does is that it corrects. It corrects us by promising possibility. Now, this is the beautiful thing with Scripture. God doesn't just reprove us of sin and leave us there. What does He then do? He shows us of what can be and what will be if we believe the promises He has given to us. Now, the thing with God is He will show you your state, He will reveal to you what you are outside of Him, the path that you have chosen, the sins that you have committed but he won't leave you there. He'll point you in the direction of the Savior. This is called repentance. You see what you've done. You see where you've drifted. You see where you've fallen. And he says, this is the new way. Let's walk in it. And you're walking in my promises because my promises are God-breathed. I'm giving you a new life. I'm giving you a new future. I'm giving a hope that you don't deserve, but I'm giving it to you anyways. The fourth thing that scripture does is that it trains us. And it trains us by challenging us to move forward. In other words, we don't stay where we are because then we stagnate. We move forward in faith. We journey and God challenges us on this journey. That's why the Christian life is characterized by a race or a walk Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us because God wants us to advance in our Christian understanding and our Christian experience. We never stay where we are. We always move forward looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's amazing what the scripture does, church. The scriptures teach us by declaring truth. They reprove us by correcting and confronting our brokenness. They correct us by promising possibility. And they train us by challenging us to move forward. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If this is not your staple diet, you could never be taught, you could never be reproved. You can never be corrected, and you can never be trained. The Word of God has its place. And not just a place amongst many other places, it has the place. My question, does it have the place in your life? You may think that I keep coming back to this point, but I'm going to keep laboring this point because this is the most important point. The Bible, church. The Bible is not just something that we open once a week. And it's not just something that we open once a day. It's something that we live moment by moment as we meditate upon his words, where we hide his words in our heart that we might not sin against him, where his words become so much a part of us that God is living in us to work according to his good pleasure. I encourage you to read this book, to read the scriptures. All of these things, the teaching, the reproving, the correcting, and the training, all for a particular purpose. And what's that? That the man of God may be complete. You will not be complete without the word of God. It is impossible. Rosie was sharing before, you know, as she, she, before she sang that song, she came to faith because of reading the Bible. I remember as a young adult, My bearings were all over the place and I sat down and I read the scriptures and I knew that I was in the wrong and that I needed to come home. And the good thing is the Bible revealed to me where I had gone wrong and it pointed me in the direction of home. The Bible does that because it wants you to be complete. Now the thing is, the Bible doesn't just save you for the sake of you. It doesn't save you selfishly because every true Christian, you know, is a Christian who lives for others. It doesn't just save you and then you sit in isolation and live a Christian life in isolation. It saves you that you might be a blessing. You're not just completed, you're also equipped. You're equipped for service, you're equipped for labour. God puts you forward, he saves you that you might be a blessing. In other words, you are blessed that you might be a blessing. You are saved that you might be an instrument in his hands to bring about the salvation of others. God uses you to do those things. And, And what foolishness! that God would choose people who had to be reproved and corrected to declare his name. That is the foolishness of preaching, and preaching isn't just somebody standing up in front of a group of people and proclaiming a truth. Preaching is coming alongside somebody and speaking words of life into people's life. It's the public and it's the one-on-one. Jesus spent a lot of time one-on-one with people pouring his life into them because he was breathing the scriptures and the truths to them. The Bible cuts... It really does. Paper cuts are uncomfortable. The Bible will cut because it reproves us and it corrects us. And those are things that we tend to avoid. Am I right with that or is that, is that only me? Who here likes to reprove others? Don't raise your hand. Who here likes to be reproved? Some people do. like There is a benefit in it. But just the thought of it doesn't sound nice, does it? The key role of the Bible is to reprove us. Why? Because God knows that there is no salvation where we presently stand. He knows that we need to see the plight of our condition that we might be willing to reach out and receive the salvation that He has for us. And so He reveals this. But whilst the Bible cuts us, church, it cuts us to save us. God is not a butcher when He cuts, He's a surgeon. And he cuts us to save. And he makes us feel uncomfortable that we might find our comfort in him. And the thing is, we can run to many different things to try and find comfort, to try and find security, and to try and find peace. You can run to the bottle, and you might have security for a while. You might have peace for a while. You might have comfort for a while. But it's only a while. And then the reality is going to dawn upon you that this empty well that promised you this peace and this security is actually not as satisfying as you thought it should be. Or you could run to sport. Or you can run to video games. And you can throw yourself into these things to distract your mind and distract your heart from what you know that you need. And God will come and he will reprove you of those things because he knows that there is no life there. There is only life in Jesus. And once he awakens us to the plight of our condition, then he can start doing something inside of us that only he can do. I remember I had an English teacher. Her name was Miss Sim. And I did not like her classes. I did not like her classes. I don't know who likes English classes, full stop, but I really didn't like her English classes. In year 11 and 12, she was our English teacher, and she had an interesting method of teaching. She would actually, once you arrived in class, you know you'd all take your seat, and she'd have this big kind of um, kind of wad of papers. And either they were poems or they were newspaper articles or they were chapters in books or whatever it was, you know. And she'd go around and she'd give one, like a, whether it was a poem or whatever it was to every single student in the class. Everyone got one. And then after everybody got one, she's like, OK. I want you to read this, and then write me an introduction to an essay. That's if we had a single period. If it was a double period, I want you to write me an essay. I want you to read this and write me an essay. And it's not like you could just kind of pretend to do it but not do it, because what she would then do is she would then choose somebody. She'd be like, Ross, read read out to the class your introduction. And you'd read out your introduction, and, and then you'd like... Everyone's watching her face and she's like, hmm, she's like, that's really good. Or she's grimacing, you know, if, it, if it's not very good, you know. And it was like this shame. Because after you read out your introduction, she's like, okay, so what can we do to make that better? And in front of the class, the whole class would contribute to making the introduction better. And so you felt like a fool if you didn't apply yourself. But I want to tell you something. As much as I hated that class... I tell you what, out of all my classes at school, that's the one where I learned the most. I wouldn't recommend that style of teaching, but I'll tell you something, I learn a whole lot through the correction and the reproof. You see what I'm getting at here? Reproof is necessary if we want to grow. If you don't want to grow, then never allow yourself to be reproved. Constructive criticism is necessary. We may think that we're pretty good, And we will convince ourselves that we're pretty good if we're not reading the word. But once you read the word you realise how how we're not all that good. And you come to the book of Romans and Paul puts it so eloquently where he's like he's quoting all these Old Testament verses and he's like, There is no righteous, no not one and he says, Our mouths are open tombs. That's the reality of humanity. In order to be able to grow and become more than what you are, you need to be confronted because you cannot change what you're not willing to confront. And being challenged is not comfortable, but it is necessary if you want to grow. The word of God is quick and powerful, it says in Hebrews, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piecing even to the vision of soul and spirit, joint and marrow and a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. If you're not reading the Word of God, then you're having a very subjective view of your own reality, and you will convince yourself of anything. But if you're reading the Scriptures, then you will have an objective view, and that view is God's view of your true reality. And once you see your true reality, you will then long for the salvation that only He can provide. That's what the Word of God does. As human beings, we have this Luciferian tendency to make ourselves our own kings and queens of our own universe. And one of the best things to disrupt that is to have kids. You realize that life's so much harder, and the things that you once did, you can't do anymore or ever again. We like to make ourselves the gods of our own world. I mean, that was the first promise, wasn't it? That Satan gave to Eve. Eat this and you'll be like God. We like to make ourselves the center and we lose our bearings, but we need a recalibration because when we come to the scriptures, we realize, no, 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 no. There is only one king and in his kingdom, we serve And it challenges the philosophy of the world, doesn't it? The world is all about me and how much I can earn, how much I can gain, and I post it all on Instagram or social media or TikTok or whatever it is so I can show people the life that I'm living when it's not really the life I'm living. It's just this vain expression of what I hope my reality to be but what it's not really. And I'm so grateful the other day that Rosie put up a picture of our kids and it was the reality. It was them all screaming at the same time. Anyone see that one? Because it's so easy for us just to put up pictures, oh, look at these cute, adorable little babies, when that's not always the reality. We like to portray what's not really the truth, and we convince ourselves that that is the truth. You know, the Bible exposes our sinful intentions. It reveals to us the wrong things that we do. But even, it even exposes to us the right things that we do for the wrong reasons. It challenges the motives of the heart. The Bible changes lives because God speaks through it. God chooses to speak to us, church. He chooses to. He takes the initiative, and salvation is all about God taking the initiative, taking the first step. He comes down and he communicates to humanity, and he gives humanity a hope, and he gives humanity a message. When humanity didn't have a hope and didn't have a message, he gives them something that they never deserved to have. He comes down to their level, And he speaks through the prophets, who in turn write the scriptures. I mean, the prophets are God's penmen, they're not his pen. And as they blend the words and the teachings of God with their own unique personality, there's this unique flavor that comes forth from the scripture. But I mean, we see God's initiative not only in the fact that God comes and speaks to humanity when he didn't need to, but even in the way that the scriptures are actually brought together. We see God coming and speaking to men. I mean, does that remind you of the incarnation for a moment? God coming to man. I mean, the word of God is you have the prophets. or you have God, sorry, who speaks to the prophets. There's the divine and there's the humanity, which brings about the word of God. Yeah? God becomes man and is called the word of God. So, even in the scriptures and how they were written, we see humanity being spoken to through divinity. Jesus is the Word of God, He's the Word made flesh. And even in the way the scriptures are brought together, we see this whole doctrine of the incarnation where God becomes man to communicate to man and to save man. You see that? It's pretty amazing. There are 66 books in this Bible. There are like 39 or whatever in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. It was written from 1500 BC to 100 AD on three different continents, three different languages. It was written by kings and peasants, fishermen and scholars, philosophers. It was written by tax collectors and peasants and shepherds but it all comes together with one consistent theme and message. That's Jesus. That's remarkable. The great story of all of these stories is centred in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's not centred in the person of Jesus Christ for some egotistical reason. Because Jesus became man God became man, the infinite humiliation of his incarnation. We see this, God taking the lofty themes of salvation and fitting it into human language. Taking an infinite theme and putting it in a finite language. That's not easy, is it? You know, for example... I might say that I love Rosie and I love pizza in the same sentence. But you would hope that I love Rosie more than what I love pizza. But I've used the same word to describe it. You see the limitations of human language? And so these great principles, these great teachings of salvation, these infinite themes that we'll be studying for eternity, God takes them and he puts it in words. And the amazing thing when he puts it in words is, you know, we, we could study it for eternity and we'll never be plumbing the depths because how can we search out God? But we see windows all throughout Scripture. And I'll give you some examples from the symbols in prophecy where we see the first messianic prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 where God addresses the serpent and says, talking about the Messiah who is to come, he will bruise your head but you will bruise his heel. We see it in the Old Testament stories where Abraham takes his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and the father is willing to sacrifice his son and Isaac is willing to lay down his life. We see the window, the picture of father and son suffering at Calvary, yeah? We see Jonah as he was thrown into the water and he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. We see Jesus in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. We see Joseph who was sold by his brothers into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. We see Jesus who was betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver and all of these little stories paint a big story of the, the story of Jesus. They all find their reason in their emphasis in him. We come to the sanctuary and each and every day with the evening and the morning sacrifice and all the other rituals in between, we see the sacrifices brought to the sanctuary prophesying, foreshadowing the Lamb of God who is to take away the sins of the world. We see the, the, the poets in the Psalms, we see David talk about the Messiah's dereliction cry where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in Psalms 22? And then he sees the glory of resurrection where he says in Psalms 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. We see it in the prophet Daniel the prophet Daniel who talks of the timing of the Messiah. We see it in Isaiah who talks about the suffering servant. And then we see Jesus take it all and summarize it on the road to Emmaus and he expounds to them the scriptures, the things concerning himself. It's all about Jesus. Jesus connects all of those dots and it's all centered in him. It all tells us the same story, but it tells us in different ways. It's like they're trying to capture something that cannot fully be captured and to contain something that cannot fully be contained. You kind of get that feeling when you read the scriptures. sometimes. It's like human language is just not enough. It's like trying to explain what a sunset looks like to somebody who's never seen or a beautiful piece of music to someone who's never heard. How do you take that and put it in human language and put finite words to infinite themes? But yet God still comes and He still speaks. And then the ultimate revelation comes, church, where the Word became flesh and He dwelt amongst us and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten, of the Father, full in grace and truth. And everything that we were reading about, everything that was prophesied, we see it with our eyes. And we see it healing. We see it restoring. We see it saving. We even see it rebuking, reproving, correcting, training, teaching. And then we see it dying. This is the word of God. And you know, the New Testament authors, (laughs) they have just as much trouble as the Old Testament authors in trying to explain what's going on. And they're like, he justifies, he redeems, he reconciles, he atones, he delivers, he saves. It's like, how many words can we throw at this and we're still not getting the completeness of it? You know what I mean? We're trying really hard here, but human language is just not enough. And that's why John says, you know, To know him is to have eternal life. The scriptures are so important, church, but I want to tell you what I'm looking forward to the day where I can see Jesus face to face. And all those questions that I have, he answers. Jesus is this book because he's the word of God. But I'm looking forward to the day where I see the word of God in the flesh. Doesn't mean that I don't appreciate this. I think half of my sermon, you know, all of my sermons communicate how important this book is. But I'm so looking forward to the day that I can see him with my own eyes and touch him with my own hands. This is not just any book, Church. This is God's book. It's not just a book in the the list of many others that's put on some kind of shelf with the bookends at the start and the end this is the book this is the only book this is this is the only book to life it is the word of God and it is God breathed and when we read it God breathes on us and we receive the creative power and the recreative power that only he can bestow That's why Peter says as we close and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. More fully confirmed? You mean more fully than Jeremiah? More fully than Moses, Peter? More fully than Isaiah and all the Old Testament prophets? We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed? Yes, because Jesus connects all the dots. You take Jesus out of this story, it doesn't make sense. If he's the center of this story, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. This is why Hebrews says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. If this book is what it says it is, and I believe so with all of my heart, if this book is what it says it is, a God breathed message, then I ask you a simple question as we close. When's the last time you read it? I mean, really read it. Not just the verse of the day that pops up on your phone but really read it. Not for information, but to find a person. A person of Jesus. Because he ain't hiding. He's not hiding behind the pages, you know, trying to get away from you. The Bible says, seek me and you shall find me when you search for me with all your heart. All the scripture is God breathed. How could God be hiding if all of it's God breathed? The question is whether we're seeking for him with all of our heart. The scriptures will teach you, they will reprove you, they will correct you, they will train you, and they will complete you because they save you. There is no other book that I know of that will do that. And yes, you will have moments where you feel challenged, but then there will be other moments that you experience great joy. There will be moments that you are absolutely confused And then there'll be other moments where you have astounding clarity as you study the word of God. In it, you will find peace. In it, you will find hope. In it, you will find direction. You would not be rudderless because you will have a guide for your life. You'll have a light in the darkness and a compass in a place where you feel as if there is just no hope. And particularly, particularly at the moment of time that we're living in Earth's history, that not even day by day as this world goes into perilous condition, but moment by moment... How important is it for us to have proper moorings? How much more important is it for us living at this time in earth's history to have a foundation to build upon which will never fail and never fade? Today is the day to build this house. The wind will come, the storms will rain down, but the word of God endures forever. Where are you building your house, church? For as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I invite you to pray with me as we close. Father in heaven, you never needed to give us the scriptures, but you did. You never needed to save us, but you did. You came down to our level because we could never get up to yours. Father, I want to thank you so much that you have given us this precious message. Countless men and women, to which only eternity will testify, have given their life for that which we have today. I pray that we may appreciate it more, that we may study it more, that we may experience what it is to be complete. Father, I pray for every single person here today. Maybe people have made a commitment that I'm gonna take the word of God seriously. I'm gonna read it more than what I have been. I ask and pray that you may give them not only that desire now, but that you may give them the willingness to do. May we not just be hearers of your word, but may we be doers as well. So Father, I ask and pray that you may be with all of us as we go on this journey and that you may breathe the breath of life upon each and every one of us that we may spiritually live as we connect with you and your ancient words which transform and save that transforms sinners into saints. I ask and pray that you may do for each and every one of us here today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: This message was made available by the Merwollin Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their Facebook page. Boy Seventh-day Adventist Church. Elliot Bowman will now sing, Give Me the Bible.
2: Give me the Bible, star of gladness gleaming. To cheer the wanderer, lone and tempest-tossed. No storms can hide that radiant, peaceful beaming, Since Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Give me the Bible, holy message shining, Thy light shall guide me in the narrow way. Precept and promise, law and love combining, till night shall vanish in eternal day. Give me the Bible when my heart is broken, when sin and grief have filled my soul with fear. Give me the precious words by Jesus spoken, hold up faith's lamp to show my Savior near. Give me the Bible, holy message shining, thy light shall guide me in the narrow way. Precept and promise, law and love combining Till night shall vanish in eternal day Give me the Bible, all my steps enlighten Teach me the danger of these realms below That lamp of safety o'er the gloom shall brighten That light alone the path of peace can show. Give me the Bible, holy message shining. Thy light shall guide me in the narrow way. Precept and promise, law and love combining. Till night shall vanish in eternal day. Give me the Bible, Life immortal, hold up that splendor by the open grave. Show me the light from heaven's shining portals. Show me the glory gilding Jordan's wave. Give me the Bible, holy message shining. Thy light shall guide me in the narrow way. Precept and promise, law and love combining Till night shall vanish in eternal day
0: It's good to be with you again today, folks, to share a poem that I've written. My name is William Ackland, and this particular poem is about a mysterious quality that Christians need in their lives, and it is entitled... Faith, at peace with thee, though often clouds may cover winter's sky and darken sun's warm and cheering ray, I cannot see the path ahead, but faith's discerning eye can pierce the gloom and in the far beyond discerns the one who'll guide me in his way. I'm trusting thee, though some may often doubt and question why It is enough for me to serve and pray, just trusting thee for wisdom now and for the will to try. In trusting and in doing, doubts are gone and in their place new faith has come to stay. I'll rest in thee. Amid the resting ways of foe and friend, no boon or bane can turn my steps astray at rest in thee. And with the resting, Trust Him to the end of this earth's sojourn, be it short or long. Faith's eyes will see my faith's reality.
2: This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.